Hello, everyone. First of all, I'd love to thank you for tuning in to the Integrative Thoughts podcast. I am your host, Matt Kaufman. And through this platform, I plan on seeking out guests that interest me, that I am curious about, and overall just living a more meaningful, purposeful life in hopes that you as listeners and I myself can grasp onto a little bit of their knowledge and integrate that into our daily lives. Are you having trouble losing weight? Do you get extreme food cravings, especially at night? What about the inability to lose weight even when you cut calories and do a lot of exercise? I know I fell into this category for pretty much most of my life. It's actually probably not even your fault. You most likely have what's called leptin resistance. Leptin is actually a hormone made by the fat cells that regulates food intake and energy expenditure by communicating with the brain. The more fat you have, the more negative leptin messages are actually being sent to your brain. This creates what's called leptin resistance and is going to sabotage all dieting efforts and causes food cravings even when you have enough fat stored. Introducing Zenith, this is an all-new, completely natural formula that gently decreases leptin levels to restore accurate communication between fat cells in the brain. Zenith contains zero harmful stimulants. It's made of all-natural polysaccharides and acetylated fatty acids, very safe for long-term weight loss plans, and it is made in the USA. In an eight-week, university-conducted, double-blind, placebo-controlled study, participants lost 21.3 pounds of fat, lost almost four inches off their waistline, and reduced serum leptin levels by 43%. So if you or someone you know, someone you really love is struggling with weight loss, head down to the show notes. I'll have a link there and a few videos where you can learn more information about Zenith. So listen, I've been experimenting with different types of minerals, especially magnesium, for the past five to six years. But I could never really find a product that I could feel the benefits that magnesium claimed to give. Magnesium is one of the most important minerals for all of human health. It participates in over 600 different biochemical reactions in the body, yet over 80% of the population is deficient. Magnesium deficiency can increase risk for all disease and greatly decrease optimal performance. That's why I like Bioptimizers. They use all seven forms of magnesium in a highly bioavailable form in their product Magnesium Breakthrough. Magnesium helps with stress, anxiety, sleep, immune function, detoxification, and so much more. If you want to try out this product, head over to Buy Optimizers and use code IntegrativeThoughts10 to receive a 10% discount on their amazing product, Mag Breakthrough. All right, this episode is near and dear to my heart. This is Dr. Bill Rawls, MD. He is a medical doctor that developed Lyme disease in his 40s and found some limitations in conventional medicine and had to research and find his own path to restore his health and wellness. Similar to my story with Lyme disease, we talk a lot about that in this episode. He is also the best selling author of Unlocking Lyme and then his newest book, The Cellular Wellness Solution. So enjoy. We talk talk a lot about herbal therapies and nutritional supplements and therapies that help to reverse Lyme. Dr. Bill Rawls, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Ah, Matthew, thank you so much. Pleasure to be here, for sure. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time to um, come on and speak about a very, very important topic that's near and dear to my heart. As you know, uh, most people who um, have dealt with Lyme disease. Definitely, it's been a struggle. And for me, it took uh, multiple, multiple years of even seeing functional health practitioners to even get a correct diagnosis and 
there's obviously other factors that came into play with it. I was living in a moldy house and other things that came into play with my chronic illness. So I figured I'd want to, I want to do a few shows this season, maybe more than a few shows with some of these Lyme experts and really mm -hmm. um, show people exactly how it's, it's a really, really complicated disease. And if you don't have someone that understands it really well, uh, you're going to have a real struggle. And that's where I was for, for a few years before I finally got the correct diagnosis and got on the correct protocol and did a whole lot of things on my own. So why don't you actually tell um, the audience who you are about your work? And I know you had a stint with Lyme disease as well, so you can dig into that whole background too. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, you know, I've, I've been a physician for over 30 years now, and I went into it with the idea of wanting to help people to become well, to stay well. And once I get into, got into medical school, I found that you know, many people dealing with chronic illness never got well. So that shifted me toward the specialty of obstetrics and gynecology, which dealt with a younger population, generally a well population. The kind of interventions that I did were sometimes life-saving, but people typically got well afterwards. And, you know, delivering a baby was really just pretty cool. Um, the downside of it was that back then, it's changed quite a lot. But then, you know, you had small groups of practitioners. I was in a relatively small town and I had to go take OB call every second to third night, which typically meant having broken sleep at the very least. And very often I was up all night doing things, you know, so calls started like seven o'clock in the morning and ended the seven o'clock the next day, 24 hours straight. Weekends, it started Friday morning and ended Monday morning. And I was on call every second to third weekend. And when I was in my 30s, man, I could get away with it, you know? I mean, I even bragged about, yeah, I don't really need sleep, you know, I can just push through this thing. And, uh, and, and, and sleep was what got shorted with doing community work and being with my family and doing this just crazy practice that I was sometimes working 60 plus hours a week with the call. Um, but then in my 40s, I started becoming less resilient and I couldn't bounce back. You know, I couldn't crash on my night's own call and get a great night's sleep and then start over again. Um, my sleep was becoming broken and I started having all these crazy symptoms. Um, my heart started beating like every second to third beat, chronic chest pain, neurological symptoms, pretty much most things that most people have, joint pain, gut issues. My whole body was falling apart. First, I identified with fibromyalgia like so many people do because Everything the, you know, the medical establishment just didn't seem to help me other than throwing medicines at my symptoms. And, but, you know, there was this thing, Lyme disease out there. And it's like, wow, if I can just get a positive test for that microbe, then I can get well, then I can get treated. And so, you know, I kept working at that and finally got a positive test. And it's like, yes, now I have the answer. Um, so I took several rounds of antibiotics and that made me sicker than before. Um, by that time I had stopped the OB call. I had started improving my diet because of the gut issues and I was reducing my stress. I was trying to recapture sleep, which was really bad for many years. Um, but 
Um, the antibiotics didn't make me well. And about that time, a guy named Stephen Booner published a book uh, called Healing Alive. Um, that was around 2005. That was about using an herbal protocol for Lyme disease. And I, um, you know, I really didn't have any other options. You know, I was still having to practice medicine. I wasn't able to declare disability. So I was still responsible for this practice that I had set up. Even though I wasn't taking OB call, you know, I still had responsibilities. So I couldn't fly around the country and go see doctors of all other kinds. You know, if I couldn't figure it out, I just couldn't do it. And herbal therapy was something I could do. I could bring it to me. It was cost effective. It appeared to be safe. Going into it, didn't have high expectations. But yeah, I mean, and, and it wasn't the stuff you find at the drugstore either, right? Or, or a grocery store or a health food store. I mean, these were high grade extracts of herbs that I'd never really heard of before, but now I'm quite familiar with. And I was taking literally handfuls of capsules at a time. And over a three month period, I started to see a difference. Um, and it was an up and down course. You know, I was stuck in a moldy office building that I couldn't get out of and all of these other things surrounding it. And I had to work through those things. But with the herbs, I made steady progress. So over a period of time of about three to five years, all my symptoms did gradually resolve. But, it, you know, it takes time and it's uh, and I thought, well, you know, I'm I'm killing the microbes. That's what I'm doing. I'm finally killing them off. But every time I'd stop the herbs, everything would come back and it's like, ah, darn. And I finally just kept taking the herbs. Um, that's been a decade ago. Um, I have had robust health with virtually no symptoms for a decade. I am 65. I am kite surfing. I am doing all the things that I thought I would never do again at age 50. And I continue, I, I plan to continue doing them. I'm aging, but I'm not aging like other people. So I've spent the past decade really understanding what the heck was going on? What is chronic Lyme disease? How does that connect with all these other chronic illnesses? Because, you know, we found Borrelia and in cancer cells and dementia and everything what's that connection and is it just borrelia or are there other microbes like all these co-infections and how do the herbs actually work what are they doing so it's been a fascinating journey wow thank you so much um for sharing that we have some definitely similar patterns with the mold and everything in our in our um in that i think that plays into a lot of people's lines sometimes especially down here in florida um you know i moved to florida and that's when it really got me yeah. um but i know you said that you got a positive test and why don't how did you get a positive test and um what is why is lyme so hard to test for yeah it's um the the problem is this that people don't differentiate between an acute infection and a chronic infection. Those are two very, very different things. So an acute infection is the first entry of a foreign bacteria, virus, protozoa, whatever, into your system. So that, system, that, that, that microbe 
has to break through barriers. It's got to get through your skin or your lungs or your intestinal tract or something to get into your body, into your bloodstream. And what we feel is symptoms of an acute infection is that microbe typically crossing that barrier and the reaction to the immune system to try to take it down. So, you know, we feel fever, we feel malaise, we feel all these symptoms, and they can be very similar, whether it's a respiratory infection, a tick-borne microbe, whatever, because that confrontation of the, with the immune system is very similar. The intensity of the confrontation depends on whether you have built-in immunity to that microbe. So, you know, we talk about virulence factors in microbes or some microbes being worse pathogens than others. It's really about your immune system, right? So we have no built-in immunity to Ebola because humans have rarely been exposed to it. So when that thing gets in your body and hits your bloodstream, it's devastating. It's horrible. But what I've come to appreciate is these tick-borne microbes, Borrelia, many of the others, these things have been around forever. Ticks have been biting humans since the beginning of time. So many people don't get an acute infection. They don't have acute symptoms. They get a tick bite. They don't even know they've gotten a tick bite. 95% of the people that I've worked with with chronic Lyme disease may don't have a history. They don't remember a tick bite or they didn't become acutely ill around a tick bite. And what that tells you is this is a pretty low-grade pathogen. The immune system does a pretty good job of cleaning it up. But what can happen is it goes through and, and you know, and, and so even though the immune system is pretty good of mopping this bacteria up when it enters the system or multiple bacteria, because we know ticks carry hundreds of different bacteria, hundreds, not a few hundreds. So these things get in your system and your immune system, if you can imagine that tick bite and it's coursing through your bloodstream and your immune system is recognizing it and doing all it can to mop this thing up and get rid of it, but some make it through to your tissues. And when they do, Borrelia has the capacity to become an intracellular microbe. It lives inside cells. So it enters cells and it can live inside cells. But really importantly, if your cells are healthy, it can become dormant inside your cells. Your brain cells, your heart cells, your lungs, your, your muscles, your joints, everywhere in your body, it can become dormant inside cells, which means they can be there and you don't know about it because your cells can keep right on functioning. You know, this is this is this new research that I'm really studying right now. This happens through our lifetime, not just with tick-borne microbes, respiratory infections, things trickle across from our gut, from our sinuses, from our gums, then ends up in our bloodstream and they can end up in our tissues. So, so, so scientists are starting to call it the dormant blood and tissue microbiome. So it's not just Borrelia. We have a lot of stuff stuck in our tissues. And that's what happened to me. I picked up these microbes when I was a child, I'm sure, I spent my whole life playing in the woods. I got tick bites all the time. These things had been dormant in my tissues, but then when I stressed my body, when I stressed my cells from poor sleep and all these things, they reactivate. And then they start breaking down cells to create food for other microbes. They start growing in all your tissues. 
And that's what a chronic infection is. But a chronic infection is different. So when, when you have that acute response, your immune system reacts to it and you're producing high levels of antibodies. And so it's easier to either pick up the microbe on a test or pick up the immune system's reaction. You know, you can measure antibodies. So that's what the Western blot is. So most all of the tests are designed to pick up acute Lyme disease. Most of the people testing have chronic Lyme disease. So I kept playing with a Western blot and went to different companies and finally, you know, got one that was positive. Um, and along about that time, too, another thing happened that I got another tick bite and a bullseye rash and had a resurgence of all my symptoms. And it kind of keyed everything off. So there were th several things that came together. But, you know, there are an awful lot of people out there that are identifying with fibromyalgia and probably have Borrelia and a lot of other things in their system. But because it's chronic, it's suppressed, it's in their tissues deeply, it's not coursing through their bloodstream, they're not having an acute reaction with their immune system, they don't find it. Yeah. Very, very interesting. And so that was quite a while back. How has testing evolved and are, do you, are any of these newer tests uh, better in your opinion? Maybe a little bit. We are getting better. Um, honestly, you know, working with people over the past decade, I don't put a lot of emphasis on testing anymore. Um, I test, I think testing has marginal value. The biggest value in testing is the more we know, the better we are, right? So uh, what I've been studying is this concept of the dormant blood and tissue microbiome and this idea that we do have microbes through our lifetime from our gut and everywhere else crossing over. And, you know, we all we used to think, well, our blood is sterile unless we have an infection, right? It doesn't have any bacteria in it. Doesn't have any bacteria floating through the fluid, but it turns out a lot of bacteria have the ability to infect cells. And uh, so this past weekend, just going through a lot of the research again, I found six independent studies where they were able to, they took blood from volunteers who were asymptomatic, didn't have symptoms, and they do what's called RNA sequencing, looking for bacterial uh, signatures. Um, and what they found is that every, every volunteer in every one of these studies had a broad spectrum of microbes from skin, from gut, from gums, from everywhere in their body that were dormant inside their red blood cells. Yeah. So it's a big deal. So this idea, you know, so they found Borrelia in breast cancer cells and other cells. They found it in brain cells and dementia patients. You know, we found it all over, but not just Borrelia. There's a lot of stuff that we're exposed to. And the deal is, and, and you know, so, so what they're looking at for a model of chronic illness, not just chronic Lyme disease, but all chronic illnesses, is what's happening is, if your body is stressed, and more specifically, your cells are stressed by bad food, exposure to mold toxins or other kinds of toxins, not sleeping, you know, being sedentary, all of these stress factors, 
your cells become weakened. And all of these microbes that have become dormant in our body start reemerging. And when they do, they start breaking down cells, which creates, it shifts the body's environment from an environment that favors cellular health and wellness to an environment that favors microbe growth. So we have a lot of different kinds of illnesses because we all pick up different microbes through our lifetime. But when you look at chronic Lyme disease, the things that people get tested for, they're not typically positive for just Borrelia. Now they have Bartonella. Well, they may have gotten that from a tick, but they may have gotten it when they were a child from a cat bite or changing a litter box or other kinds of things. They have Toxoplasma. They have Babesia. They have chlamydia, which they typically pick up from respiratory infections when they're kids. They have mycoplasma, which you can get sexually or respiratory. But they're typically not, you know, a lot of these things aren't typically spread by ticks. They're, they, we pick them up other places. And everybody has reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus, right? So the things that we test for, we're finding positive. But if you look at the possibilities, you can magnify it exponentially and there are literally hundreds of things so it's really it, it's hard to test for everything that is possible but when you look start looking at Lyme disease from that point of view antibiotics just using antibiotics alone look like um, a less valuable solution Absolutely. Before we get into um, antibiotics and other co-infections, I want to ask um, something that really helped with that Dr. Minkoff likes is uh, he did muscle testing and also uh, dark field microscopy. Are you inter are you do you look at any of that when you're seeing patients at all? I typically don't. And it's uh, dark field microscopy can be helpful, but not always. Um, again, a lot of these microbes are actually inside red blood cells. And, and that's the thing that has really uh, changed my uh, you know, impression of what chronic Lyme disease is. The fact that virtually all the microbes we're dealing with are intracellular. And they can be inside red blood cells, inside white blood cells. And if, if they are, you're not seeing them on dark field microscopy. Um, muscle testing, I think, can have value. Um, you know, I, I, I think our body is always trying to talk to us. And that's one way we can interpretate how those signals are occurring, that, you know, it, it's kind of like tapping into our intuition. Yeah, that's too. I thought the muscle testing was really interesting because as I went and did like follow up checkups, it kind of shifted. Like I didn't, he didn't focus on Babesia in the beginning, but then when I went back, the Babesia showed. So it almost seemed like it showed my nervous system was showing him what I needed at the time. And then when I went back, it kind of changed. And then he would muscle test me for different supplements that I wasn't on uh, in the beginning. And then uh, it would just kind of gradually the protocol changed, and that seemed to work pretty well for uh, for me at least. Yeah, yeah, I think that could be helpful. Um, one of the the things that I've found about herbal therapy, though, is that the herbs have such a broad spectrum of coverage that it's um, 
you know, there are a lot of herbs that, you know, when you combine different herbs together and that sort of thing, you get such overlapping coverage for so many different microbes, then it, it, it just makes that whole process easier. Yeah, the, the blend of uh, herbs that he would have me on were, um, you know, there'd be like some dry powdered, some liquid form, and there would be probably like 12 herbs in a bottle. It was a monastery of herbs was like the main one he used and then some others. And uh, but he would muscle test me for different combinations of them and my body would respond to them differently. And then he would yeah. um, give me the ones accordingly. So I thought that was pretty cool and it seemed to work pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Just mm -hmm. out of curiosity, do you remember a specific tick bite when you got sick? Uh, honestly, I don't. Um, I grew up with a lot of immune system dysregulation like that my mother didn't know much about. I had a lot of ear infections and ear surgeries, and I would get these random like fungal things on my face that they would just say was a fungal thing and athlete's yeah. foot and different fatigue. So I think I was already kind of started off on the wrong foot, but they, I never, I did, you know, I would just take rounds and rounds of antibiotics. Like I lived on antibiotics when I was younger. So that yeah. did set me up for failure as an adult to probably come down with some of the, you know, this Lyme disease and other infections. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, we know that the, you know, chronic antibiotic use not only disrupts your normal flora, it also um, disrupts your cells, you know, it weakens cells. And, and that's a big deal. You know, we hear a lot about the immune system, but I, but I like to look at it that we have four layers of defense in our body. All right. So our first layer is our normal flora. You know, the immune system doesn't typically reach out onto our skin or inside the gut, right? So what protects us, what keeps those microbes, those pathogens in our gut in check and keeps them from being invasive is our normal flora. So normal flora, just you know, bacteria that we have a long-term relationship with, and they actually secrete substances that suppress pathogens. They're not really doing it for us. They're doing it so they get more food, basically. And it's, they're doing it for our own, own survival, but it works out well for us. So that's first level. Second level is barriers. Um, you know, the lining of the lungs, there, our skin, our, the lining of the intestinal tract. So we want to keep bacteria and other microbes separate from our tissues. So barriers are really important, but yeah, stuff gets through all the time. We know things leak across the intestinal lining. We know things get through the skin. And then who doesn't get tick bites or other kinds of bug bites during their life? Those bugs just, you know, they pass that bacteria right up, right through that barrier into the bloodstream. So the backup plan is our immune system. So our immune system is most important in acute infection. When that barrier has been breached, your immune system is there to keep it in check. So 70% is in of the immune system surrounds the gut because things are constantly crossing from the gut. You know, there was a study in 2015 that showed that um, that bacteria are constantly trickling across from the gut into the bloodstream and invading our red blood cells. So it's part of that dormant blood microbiome. Um, so this is happening all the time, but they also demonstrated that when you get dysbiosis from eating bad food or taking a lot of antibiotics, that trickle becomes a flood of pathogens into your bloodstream. 
So that leaky gut that we get, it's not just proteins that are crossing, it's pathogens that are crossing. So not only do you end up with Lyme disease in your tissues, you end up with all those gut pathogens in your tissues too. So that's the third level of defense is your immune system. And it's most important during that acute infection. The fourth level of defense, and people don't think about this, all these things are invading our cells. Why do they invade cells? Our cells are food. <laughs> That's what they want. Any living thing is food, right? So they want to get to our tissues. They want to invade our cells. And if they get us out of the cell, it's protection from the immune system. So the deal is, turns out that cells aren't defenseless. Our cells can expel microbes or kill microbes that invade them, but only if they're healthy. So if cells have been weakened, then, then they're just fodder. You know, they, they're just, the, the microbes invade and take over and take the cell over. But that third option that they could actually invade the cell and become dormant in a healthy cell, that's really interesting. And it turns out that's happening a lot more than we know it. And it's happening in every living organism on earth. That's super interesting. So what it, it just seems as if when you're healthy, you get some of these microbes, they just lay there dormant. You don't actually expel them. They just kind of hang out there. And then as you age or you deal with chronic stress, traumatic event, moldy office, then they get reactivated, which is uh, what happened right. to me. I, as far as the muscle testing, I had Epstein-Barr, I had the Lyme, I had Babesia, you know, they would have labeled me fibromyalgia if I wasn't out at Dr. Minkoff's. Like a normal doctor yep. office would have gave me fibromyalgia and went from there. And, you know, just the chronic pain. I, I mean, I felt like every system in my body was shutting down. It was, it was quite bizarre. Yep. Well, I had you know, multiple infections. Yeah, think about it. So you had microbes in all of these tissues, dormant microbes, not just Borrelia, not just Babesia, but all kinds of stuff, right? Whatever you think you have, multiply it by a factor of somewhere between 10 and 100, and that's what actually is there. That's what you've collected during your lifetime. So Epstein-Barr and these other things are just things that we've learned to readily test for, or we routinely test for. There's so much stuff out there that we, we're just, we haven't even classified it yet. We're just on the very early stages of this. So imagine those things reactivating, breaking down those cells, right? and emerging and infecting other cells. Well, what does your immune system do at that point? Well, it attacks those cells that those microbes are emerging from, and it gets, ends up getting healthy cells in the process. So that autoimmune phenomenon that's been documented for Lyme arthritis, Lyme carditis, it's a reaction to those microbes emerging from cells. So we know that actually a lot of the damage that occurs isn't as much from the microbes, it's from the immune system's reaction to the presence of the microbes emerging from cells and infecting other cells. So that's a big part of it. Yeah, part of it is, you know, it is, is, uh, is killing the microbes. You know, you, we, we want to suppress them, but we, we have to calm that immune system response down too. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we'll get into like the herbal and all the stuff. I just had some other questions um, or just going around Lyme. I know you said we kind of talked about how you don't look for diagnosis um, in your book. You said you look more for like system disruptors. And I'm, 
I'm kind of curious of what uh, you name them in the book, but if you can go through some of those uh, system disruptors for us. Yeah, it's um, I've, I've since come to call them cell stress factors, right? So when you look at this thing, it's all about cells. And that's where I've, I've, uh, that's where I've arrived with my most recent book, The Cellular Wellness Solution. We are beings of cells. You know, we're collecting a big collection of trillions of cells. And if we're healthy, it's because our cells are healthy and our cells are all the functions of our cells are synchronized, which is really what we're doing with hormones. You know, what we're doing with hormones is coordinating cellular functions. So if your hormones are messed up, you feel symptoms because your your cells aren't working together. You know, you're, you're not working as a unit. Everything is messed up. So cellular stress is a big part of this whole thing. And and so, yes, we've got the cells, the the, the microbes invading the cells. That's part of it. But. A lot of the times we have other factors. So if your cells are healthy, you know, ultimately what good health is, is healthy cells. So if your cells are healthy, you know, that's our end goal is, is restoring cellular health as much as killing the microbes. Because if your cells are healthy, they can either reconnect with that microbe and, and, and put it back in a dormant state or get rid of it, expel it. So it's not just your immune system. You want your cells working for you too. And so these stress factors, so no matter what illness you look at, whether it's chronic Lyme, autoimmune, dementia, cardiovascular, anything, you know, we, we look at these same factors of cells being stressed in the body and, and this chronic cellular stress. So when you look at these factors that are really driving any kind of chronic illness, you start asking, well, what's stressing the cells? Well, number one, cells have to have good nourishment. And if you're eating a processed food diet that's loaded in carbohydrates, low in nutrients, riddled with bad fats that are free radicals, that's going to stress your cells. Um, your cells just can't function as well if they're not getting the right fuel and the right nutrients, the right raw materials to do their job. So eating well is really important. Bad food is a bad stress that increases cancer and every known illness. Um, the second category is toxic substances. And this can be natural toxins like mold toxins. Um, it's not really natural for us to be exposed to mold, though, because we're living now in houses that are very tightly sealed that keep moisture and heat inside. And, and that's really a good environment to grow these toxic moles and the mycotoxins get in the environment, get in the air, and they stress cells. Um, but then outside of that, we are just being bombarded with just hundreds of thousands of different chemicals in the environment from, from petroleum use, from plastics, from coal that weren't here 100 years ago. And what these things do is basically get stuck in our cells and they inhibit cellular functions. So it's like it's like our cells have a ball and chain. You know, they just can't do their job because they've got these the this the stuff that's inhibiting their function. Stress. Keeping your cells in high alert prevents your cells from having recovery time. So the cells in your body work hard, but we do most of that work in the daytime. Um, and your cells need downtime to recover. 
I mean, everything has to have downturn. Even bacteria have kind of sleep cycles that they have to go through. So our cells have to repair damage that's caused by wear and tear. Sleep is when that happens. So the biggest reason you need sleep is so your cells can recover. So if you get four or five, six hours of sleep every night, like I used to, then I'm, you know, it means I was starting every day with cells that were inhibited in function, that they, they you know, they, they hadn't cleaned up all the, the, the bad proteins and the other worn out stuff that had occurred from the previous day. So they were starting at, at a disadvantage. Um, and then exercise, that's a big deal. Um, the biggest, the most important thing we do with exercise is move blood. That, it, that's the most important thing we do. So when we exercise, we increase our heart rate, we get blood flowing, we open up our capillaries so more fluid flows into that cellular space. So not only does that increase oxygen and nutrient delivery to cells, it also pulls away toxic substances. So, so the toxins are in the cells and the cells are constantly trying to purge them. But if you've got lots of congestion and junk from inflammation around your cells, your cells can't purge that stuff and it just sits there. So increasing that flow, washing it away so, so toxic substances and metabolic waste can be carried away by the bloodstream and the lymphatic system is really important. For people who can't do exercise, you know, their body's just too inflamed. And I, you know, I was that way for a, a couple of years. Infrared sauna is really important because infrared sauna moves blood without causing friction. So it doesn't increase inflammation. So, so infrared sauna can be really important. So those are four factors, nourishment, toxic environment, chronic stress and not sleeping, sedentary lifestyle, and sometimes trauma. You know, the other end of the physical factor is uh, sometimes a bad trauma and being in the hospital and, and, and just having a compromised body can precipitate an illness. And then the fifth factor we've talked about a lot already is the microbe factor. And that's always there in every individual. Now, granted, you know, some people go through life and they don't pick up some of the microbes that might increase their risk of chronic illness. But we all get some stuff and it's all there and it's all waiting. Yeah, that's amazing. Thanks for breaking that down for us. And as um, far as the nourishment, do you have a favorite diet that you use uh, for recovery? I, I I do. You know, we um, in our protocols, we I have a diet that I've used for years just to help people with really bad gut dysfunction. You know, and it goes back to helping myself and helping other individuals. I had bad, I had bad leaky gut and I was had food sensitivities to 75 percent of the foods that I've eaten. So the diet that's in unlocking lime and that we use in our programs is you know, just going through all the things, all the foods that are apt to cause problems and trying to eliminate them and get get people down to a, something that they can tolerate that's good for their GI tract, good for their cells, and do that GI re rehabilitation. For me personally now, I have three most important guidelines that I stick to every single day of my life. 
So one is I try to keep my carbohydrate load below 150 grams. Now that's not ketogenic. You have to go down to below 70 grams to go ketogenic. And I find that that is just more comfortable. I check my hemoglobin A1C, which measures the rate of carbohydrate damage that we call glycation. Um, I check it about every six months um, just to make sure, yeah, I'm doing the right things because sometimes, you know, you slip up, you get lazy. Um, and that keeps me honest. Um, but um, so I keep it down to about 150 grams. And, you know, that's just more comfortable than trying to go on a strict carb free diet. Um, but it's not enough to get you in trouble. Um, so that 150 seems to be a really good mark. Um, the other rule that I have is I try to eat more vegetables every day than anything else. So vegetables, I'm talking about not only broccoli and celery and cucumbers, but also, you know, squash. And, um, I throw sweet potatoes in there. Um, even though mushrooms aren't a plan, I throw mushrooms in there. So they're low carb, high fiber, high nutrient density foods. Um, and I think that's really important. So I shoot for that 50%, at least 50% vegetables every day. Um, and if you do that, those two things, you know, that's going to line your diet up pretty well. Um, I eat meat because I was sensitive to so many protein sources like soy and nuts and things like that. It's really was really hard for me not to eat meat and still get protein. Um, but I typically eat more fish and and seafood um, than anything else. And I don't eat a lot of meat, you know. Um, I can eat nuts, nuts now and other things, which has made my life a little bit more comfortable, but it took me about a decade to get, to get rid of all those food sensitivities. It just takes time. And the third thing that I do is I narrow my eating window. We call it intermittent fasting, um, typically to about six to eight hours a day. So typically in the morning, I'll get up. And I'd like a little something to start my day. So I'll have like an egg with sautéed salad greens. I just take like a big handful of the regular greens that you get from the grocery store and sauté them with a little pesto or something like that. So it has virtually no carb in it. Um, but then I won't eat anything until 12 o'clock. And I eat all the rest of my calories between 12 and 6. And then I don't eat anything after 6 o'clock. I'm pretty religious about that. I keep my weight down. I feel good. Um, you know, that reduces inflammation in your body. My GI tract works great now. All of those things are really important. Super interesting. As far as like uh, eating large amount of vegetables, did you have any like problems with like raw vegetables when you were? For me, I had to cut back on quite a few of the vegetables. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe I should have been cooking more of them or doing stews or something because I was having a tough time because I was doing the plant-based thing for a while. Um, and I just, I was having so such bad bloating and gas with a lot of the fibrous vegetables and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think everybody finds that certain, certain things key off their uh, digestive tract more than others. It's like, I've always been able to do cruciferous like broccoli and cabbage and things like that with no problem. Some people, it, it, you know, they, their bacterial makeup in their gut will ferment that and it causes gas. Um, but typically everybody that we start out on a diet, I have them cook absolutely everything. 
um, because cooking really does it it helps kill bacteria it helps um it 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 helps just break down the food so it makes it easier for your digestive tract so if you're having digestive in, issues you know you want to do everything you can to help that digestive process as far as cooking the food um, you don't want to cook it so much that you kill all the nutrients in it, but you want to cook it enough to break it down. You want to kill, cook it enough to kill the bacteria in it. Um, you want to, and, and so that helps. And also chewing is really important, and then digestive enzymes can help. Um, so all of those things help a lot. Um, so the two biggest causes of gut dysfunction are eating a bad diet, which is, you know, typically people are eating high carb diets. And we know that high carbohydrate diet slows gastric emptying and gas and, and intestinal motility and decreases stomach acid. And the second one is stress. So anybody with chronic Lyme disease is stressed. And when you are chronically stressed, you tend to run higher levels of adrenaline and that slows down intestinal function. So it's really important to keep things moving through, all right? Bacteria grow as long as food is present. So if you can imagine, you know, you, you've eaten a big load of food, and for most people, that's a high-carb meal. You've eaten a big load of food, but you, but with stress and bad diet, you've decreased your stomach acid. So you know, you're not killing bacteria in your stomach like H. pylori and things like that because you've got low acid. And then the food just sits there and it just, you know, it causes reflux. It erodes through the stomach lining. But gradually when it gets into the small intestine, you have to keep things moving pretty fast through the small intestine. Bacteria grow as long as food is present. And if things are stagnant, if things aren't moving, then that you keep growing bacteria and you get bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine. And that growth produces gas. When, when bacteria are churning up food, they ferment. So you get gas and that becomes trapped in your small bowel. So whatever you're eating, if you're not moving it through pretty fast, you can get gas from it. And that works all the way down to the bottom of the line where you know you end up with chronic constipation and other kinds of issues which I had desperately had for years. So, um, but, um, so it was a process, you know, it was changing my diet, reducing the stress and just gradually reducing the stress of the illness um, is what gradually restored my intestinal function to normal. Um, probiotics, they can be valuable in certain cases, but again, bacteria grow as long as food is present. And if the problem is you're not moving things through, taking probiotics can actually make it worse instead of better. So you have to be really careful with probiotics. And do you have like a favorite probiotic? Like I, I use the Just Thrive, like the Spore probiotics for a while. Do you have like, and then Dr. Minkoff had me on some, I think Spore probiotics that he formulated himself. So I took a couple different ones while I was trying to heal my gut. I've been back and forth over the years. I studied the probiotic research. I took probiotics religiously for years, and I found they didn't do very much for me. I think it's very individual. Some people they help, some people they don't. Some some probiotics work, some don't. What I found is the herbs worked a lot better. 
Um, because when we talk about the difference in the antimicrobial properties of herbs compared to an antibiotic, an antibiotic is a single ingredient that's, that's just pulled from a natural source, typically either a fungus, a bacteria, or a plant, and, and then potentiated synthetically. Um, but it's just one chemical that hits bacteria indiscriminately. When you take an herb, you're getting this complexity of hundreds, probably even thousands of chemicals that the plant is producing to protect its cells from microbes. So it's more of a system and it has a certain amount of sophistication and intelligence behind it. So typically an herb will have antiviral, antibacterial, antiprotozole, and antifungal properties, but it's selective. It hits pathogens and not normal flora. That's why I could get away with taking herbs for years and years and years without it disrupting my gut. In fact, it helped my gut restore to normal because it was suppressing the pathogens and allowing the normal flora to flourish in another way. But it was also helping with that bacterial overgrowth in general, because that can be even friendly bacteria. So I found personally that the herbs worked um, better than probiotics in most cases. You know, I think it's fine to try probiotics. Some people get a really good response from them. I did not, and many people I've talked to haven't. Yeah, I've I've heard kind of the same thing, and they I don't know if they really work for me or not. I, I I felt when I took the Just Thrive stuff, it felt like some almost like some herx, like some die off, as if it was killing some bacteria. But then I don't know if it really overall helped my gut uh, function, but it maybe seemed to be killing off some bacteria. Uh, and I did that off and on for a while. And then I have like half a bottle in the cupboard. I haven't took in a while. So I, I, my gut yeah. function is pretty solid now, but I, I don't really, I was going through so much and taking right. herbs and this, it was kind of hard to really figure out what was doing what. Yeah. Yeah. Again, yeah, I, I actually think the herbs do a little bit more. And when I was writing my most, most recent book, I actually found a study that they documented it. Um, they were, they looked at, uh, at several different kinds of models and they, they actually demonstrated that the that various kinds of herbs actually suppressed pathogens in the gut, but did not suppress normal flora. It was really interesting that somebody had taken the time to do that kind of work. There's a lot of great science out there that just isn't getting the attention it should. Yeah, it's usually how it goes, right? <laughs> About the scientific community. And then also it's hard to find people to fund the studies half the time on what you actually uh, are looking for. The people are usually have some type of financial motivation behind performing an expensive study. In this country, that is very true because so much of it is funded by the pharmaceutical companies. But that seems to be less true um, around the world. And quite frankly, I am just, I, I feel that we are indebted to uh, institutions and scientists around the world that have done wonderful work in the past two decades, but especially the past decade, looking at looking at how herbs work, looking at this dormant microbiome and, and these connections between microbes and illness. And, and they're not getting any kind of kickback from pharmaceutical companies or anything. They're just doing it. They're doing it for the sake of doing science. And it's like, 
I, it just gives me shivers when I start going through all these studies and realizing how important all this is, but recognizing that, you know, they, they are doing it truly because they think it's important. And, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of great stuff. So, that, you know, going through my journey, I've had so many questions and especially writing this new book, I've had so many questions that, you know, something seemed logical. It seemed like it should be this way, but I needed that scientific proof and got on PubMed and yeah, it was there. Somebody had looked at that, that question and answered it and I could get that scientific validation, which was really wonderful. That's amazing. And it's, I, it's weird. Um, the world we're in, we like everybody wants like the science. And I guess that kind of helps and people tend to write off anecdotal stuff. And I know you actually kind of touched on that in the unlocking line book about like these online forums and these communities and these antidotes. And I always kind of preach. I talked to my friend Carly about this and other people like antidotes do matter. Like if someone switches yeah. their diet and they feel a lot better, they don't really need a study They're, They can just listen to their body. They introduce new herbs or new supplements and they feel better or worse. They can just listen to their body. They don't need a scientific study. Yeah. Well, you know, so much of what we end up with is what we call reductionist science, you know, science that has been done to prove a specific point. And all science is good, but science is really about looking at our world and evaluating all the information available. So a lot of things get discounted. Like you can, you can learn a lot about what we should be eating by what our ancestors ate and what different populations around the world that are healthy eat. Um, and those aren't necessarily, you know, published in a scientific study, but it's like, you know, the Japanese are some of the healthiest people on earth and, you know, looking at what they eat and how they, how they go about life is really valuable. So any information is good. And I look at it, you know, my journey as far as trying to understand chronic illness and chronic Lyme disease, I started looking at it like it was a jigsaw puzzle. And, you know, so you've got this, you've got this pile of pieces in front of you. You don't have the picture on the front of the box to go by. It got lost. So you're trying to piece together this picture just from all these puzzle pieces getting sitting there. And the problem is so often what we see in medical science is they make broad conclusions from only looking at a few of the puzzle pieces, but they don't understand that big picture. They haven't looked at all in, all the information and they do that so they can you know promote their particular point of view and this is happening all the time in medicine and it gets us into trouble so when i look at chronic illness i'd say eh, my picture is about 90 95% complete i put a lot of pieces of that puzzle together um and and that is what real science is all about it's not taking the little pieces of information and trying to make you know these big conclusions it's about taking those pieces and figuring out how they fit with other pieces and other pieces and taking logic to guide that. So you put together a really good understanding of what's actually going on. 
Yeah, so that's beautiful. We need. I think that's where it's shifting. It seems like maybe I'm just surrounded about around this community because of going through all the natural uh, remedies for to heal myself. But so maybe I'm a little bit more into it. But it seems like it's growing as far as on social media and everything like that, where uh, people are really starting to tap into like you know looking at the whole instead of this reductionist view. So I don't know. Fingers crossed that we we keep heading in that direction. You know, that is what it's all about. Um, social media podcasts like I'm doing with you. You know, that that's what we have that people didn't have 30 years ago. And that is giving us an opportunity to move faster. And because it's not just a few people in an ivory tower going, well, this is what we think. You know, it's lots and lots of people. You don't have to med- have a medical degree to 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 really start understanding these things and and putting all these pieces together. So there are a lot of great people out there that are discussing this, this broader discussion that we're having in all of our media, I think is really healthy. Um, it can go the other way. You know, there is a lot of misguided impressions out there and a lot of misconceptions. And I've spent a lot of time and, and that's where the science is really important to, to, um, it's like the, the, the recent book that I wrote. Um, it has 75 pages of single space citations of the scientific studies. It took me two years just to search and find the science to verify what I was saying. Um, and then another year to write it and just make it, you know, comfortable for the average reader. So, so, so that's where the science keeps us honest. Um, so if you, you know, you can say something, but you really need to look for some kind of hard evidence to say, yeah, that's really so. Yeah, that's amazing. And I'm glad you're able to find that and cite that. I, I do like both. Um, I'm kind of tapped into some of the anecdotal stuff, some of the scientific stuff. And I love bringing people on who've read a lot of the science because then they can kind of break that down and maybe more of like a digestible manner for people who aren't really going to read all of them citations that you put in your book, but they may read the book. That's a little bit more digestible for them and uh, they can extract from that what they need. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So um, let's dive into some of the actual, um, you know, herbs and different things that you recommend uh, as far as dealing with Lyme. And when uh, herbs are probably your favorite, it seems like what you talk about quite the most um, is there like just an overall broad program you put people on or do you kind of um, adjust it like I was talking about, depending on co-infections and how does that work? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, that we know about a lot about certain herbs as much as anything because we've used them more than others. And, and I'll talk about that. And I think we can, um, uh, give Stephen Booner a lot of credit for that, for when he wrote his first book, Unlocking Lime, and then subsequent books after that. Um, by the way, he passed away about a week ago. Uh, really wonderful oh, really? individual. And um, he's just made a huge contribution that has affected so many of our lives. But um, that that kind of set a precedent. And but the interesting thing is, and where my journey is taking me, is that all plants, then therefore all herbs, have 
broad spectrum antimicrobial properties. So whether you're talking about some herbs that we really don't think of as antimicrobial, like turmeric and rhodiola and hawthorn for your heart, I searched it out and found that, yeah, people had looked, and yes, they actually do have antimicrobial properties. And it makes sense because all living organisms have to protect themselves from invasive microbes, every single thing whether bacteria have to protect themselves from other bacteria, funguses have to protect themselves from other funguses. You know, most of our antibiotics are chemicals from either bacteria or funguses, but plants do too. Plants are constantly assaulted with every variety of virus, bacteria, protozoa, everything else. So when we take an herb, we are taking basically the plant's immune system. It, you know, plants don't have a cellular immune system like we do. They have a chemical immune system. And so all these chemicals are there to repel and fight off microbes. How strong they are in which microbes depend on the microbes present in the natural environment of the plant. So. It's like a plant like rhodiola does have antimicrobial properties. Now, rhodiola is an adaptogen. It's from Siberia, cold, harsh environment. Not a lot of microbe stress there, really, but it, it's really good for helping us adapt to physical stresses. So, but it does have some. Compare that with cat's claw, one of our main herbs for Lyme disease from the Amazon. Hot, moist environment, a lot of microbe stress there. Man, it's pumping out antimicrobials. So it a little bit depends on where the plant naturally evolved. And interestingly, you find plants all over the world that are very similar. So it's like rhodiola from Siberia has a close relative that grows in the Appalachian Mountains of North Carolina. So we find common species of plants. Um, cat's claw, they're common species, they're similar species in China. Um, Sarsaparilla, another one of our herbs. What Sarsaparilla is, is cat's claw. There are species of cat's claw everywhere. They're in Florida, North Carolina, everywhere. And they all have medicinal properties, but they all haven't been studied in the same way. So there are probably a lot of things that we don't even know about yet or were to, were to do, use traditionally, and you know we, we just haven't paid attention to them as much. But what Stephen Booner did is he put together herbs that had been used for other spirochetes, like syphilis and things like that. Um, and it turns out that all of those herbs have pretty broad spectrum antimicrobial properties, um, but they give us a foundation. So those particular herbs are widely used so my basic, uh, you know, the, the basic core that I do for people is Japanese knotweed. That's an invasive from uh, Asia, but it grows all over everywhere now. Um, it's a good source for resveratrol and resveratrol from grapes, from red wine. Um, actually, Japanese knotweed is a better source. That's one of the antimicrobial phytochemicals in the herb, but it has a lot of others. Cat's claw that I mentioned from the Amazon, that's another great one. Um, Andrographis, not quite as good for Borrelia, but boy, it's great for antiviral and gut and protozoa. Um, and then Chinese skullcap, another one. 
great immune modulator. It's one of the things that can help balance that autoimmune reaction that we're having. So all of these, you know, one of the other advantages of the herbs is they're immune modulators. So that overactive autoimmune part of the immune system that's working against us, it calms it down. So that's another big advantage of the herbs. Um, reishi and cordyceps are mushroom species. They're not plants, but they have similar chemicals. Great antivirals. Uh, do you have some antiborrelial factors? So, so those are my main, main ones. Um, so thousands, tens of thousands of people have used these same herbs. Um, but we do have some other evidence. Um, interestingly, a researcher from China, Johns Hopkins, a few years back, took interest and said, all right, people are using these herbs. Do they really kill Borrelia? And we want to do it as a test tube study because we don't want to see the influence of the immune system. We want to know if it actually kills the bacteria. So they took a, a bunch of the herbs and six out of 12 of them had great activity against Borrelia in a test tube against the cyst forms and the motile forms. Um, so Japanese knotweed, Chinese skullcap, cat's law were on that list. There were some others that I don't use as much, like clove. Clove is a great antimicrobial, but it irritates the gut. Artemisia is another one that's really nice, but it has some long-term uh, neurological issues. Um, and, uh, and black walnut, um, which a lot of people don't tolerate. But, you know, some, some of these basic herbs that we've been using actually worked better than doxycycline and, and other antibiotics for killing Borrelia. So that was a big surprise, and that adds a lot of validity to what we're doing. But they didn't stop there. Here's the interesting thing. They used those same herbs against Bar Babesia, which is a protozoa, right? They had good activity, too better than their drugs. And Bartonella, which is a totally different kind of bacteria. Yeah, Chinese skullcap, Japanese knotweed, several of these same herbs, andrographis, great activity there. And when I started searching for herbs that might have activity against SARS virus, way back in March of 2020, I found a long list that they had looked at that when they had looked at other SARS from the previous SARS epidemics, they were looking at herbs that might have value. Japanese knotweed, Chinese skullcap, andrographis were on the list again, along with some things like um, garlic and turmeric. Um, so it was really interesting and it just shows that wide range the herbs have. Now, if, if you tell me tomorrow that I couldn't get any of those herbs, none of them. They weren't available anymore. How desperate would I be? Not at all, because there's so many different herbs that we can use. So we start adding on cryptolapis, which we know is really great for Bartonella and Babesia, and, and Sita, uh, um, Biden's Pelosa and Alcornia. So the list just goes on and on. And I've tried. Oh, probably well more than a hundred different herbs along my recovery, along with the essential oils. And, you know, I tried a lot of different stuff um, and found that there were a lot of things that had activity, which is really nice. Yeah, that's amazing. So it sounds like there's like a, a base core that you use and then you can stack as far as 
how complicated or how advanced people want to go and what their budget right. is and things like that. That's typically what I do <laughs> instead of doing a lot of expensive microbe testing. And, you know, and I've had it do, done both ways. I've counseled literally thousands of people over the past decade. And, and I'm always interested if they've had microbe testing, but there's some people that couldn't afford that. So we didn't do it. So we start them out with that basic regimen of herbs and, and see how they do over a three to six month period. And if they don't, uh, respond or, or, or they plateau. And, and that was something that I did in my recovery a couple of times. I'd reach a plateau. I'd keep that core, but I'd add another one in like cryptolepis. You know, that's, that's kind of a, a first one that I would add in. Um, to cover for Bartonella and Babesia a little bit more strongly. So, so there's so many choices and you can just add things in and try them as you go. And a lot of times, you know, nine times out of 10, you don't end up needing extensive, uh, antimicrobial testing. Because again, we're suppressing with the herbs, we're suppressing a broad range of microbes. We're not necessarily eradicating them from their cells. I mean, I've been well for 10 years and I think I probably have things dormant in my tissue still. I don't think I've eradicated it. I think they're still there. I've got to keep my, keep my guard up. But I think you return it to a state that's stable of microbes dormant inside cells. And, you know, they're, they're not, they don't have the upper hand, in other words. So not only are these herbs killing the microbes, they're also protecting cells from cellular stress. They're protecting cells from free radicals and toxic substances and radiation and all of these other factors. And that has all been well proven for herbs also. So in that cellular protection, we're reducing cellular stress. So the cells, not just the immune system, but the cells can start protecting themselves. And that is getting to the core of how to overcome chronic Lyme disease. Awesome. That's amazing. And I know there's also uh, like different forms of herbs as far as like the whole uh, whole herb dry powder. You also have the alcohol base. Are you using uh, both, a combination, yeah. one better than the other? How do you go about that? Well, sometimes it's what you can get, right? Um, and different herbs come in different ways. So there are three primary commercial preparations. So one is a whole herb powder. Um, and basically what they do with that is they take the plant, dry it, and they crush the whole plant into a fine powder. And a few herbs, that's the only way you can get them. It's like one from the Amazon that's really good for mycoplasma called animu. That's the only way you can get it is a whole herb powder. But for most herbs, what you're getting more of, you're not getting as much of the chemistry. You're basically just getting the fiber of the plant. So yeah, that's 10, you know, if you go to a health food store and cost something costs 13 bucks a bottle for a bottle of, of capsulized herb, it's, it's whole herb powder. You're not going to get much there. And you're going to have to take a lot of it to get a difference. So the second thing is, is a tincture. So what we want is the chemistry from the plant. We want all these complex chemicals and we want to get as wide a spectrum of them as we possibly can because they all work together. So we can do that with an extraction method, typically using water and alcohol is the most traditional. So the water is pulling aqueous based chemicals from the plant, whereas 
the uh, the alcohol is, pro is is pulling some of the fat soluble chemicals. So we're getting this wide spectrum of, from the plant. So with a tincture, they take that water alcohol and they soak the plant in it. And how concentrated it is depends on how, what the ratio of plant parts to the water and alcohol. So you can get some pretty flimsy tinctures that don't really have much in them. So it's really important to look at the concentration. Um, so once they, once they extract all the chemicals, they take out the plant parts, you know, the stems and leaves and that's in roots or whatever it is, and they throw that away. So all you're getting is a bottle of the chemicals in the water. Um, and, and a lot of tinctures are really good, especially if they're super concentrated. Um, some things like cryptolepis, it's really hard to find it in anything but a tincture. Um, the mistake I think with a lot of tinctures is people aren't taking enough of it. You know, typically Stephen Booner will recommend several teaspoons of something two or three times a day and people are, you're taking drops. Um, and sometimes people are limited by having Herzheimer reactions, but Remind me, and we'll come back and talk about that because I think some products out there, there's a reason why people are having Herzheimer reactions. So tinctures are good, but you have to take a lot of them. They're bitter. They don't necessarily taste good. What I use in most of our products and what I took in my recovery are standardized powdered extracts. So what that is, is they take the water and alcohol tincture spray it on a surface, dry off the water and alcohol, and collect the powder and put it in the capsule. So if it's a, you know, if you start with a concentrated extract and dry off all the water and alcohol and just collect the powder, man, that capsule is potent. I mean, one capsule will equal one to several teaspoons of a tincture. So as far as getting the quantity of phytochemistry in people that we really need to get, those standardized powdered extracts are really the easiest way to do it. Um, they travel easy, you know, it's just a matter of taking capsules and you're getting a lot of stuff. Um, I did plenty of both, but I used more of the standardized extracts, uh, the powdered extracts than anything else. Um, and that's, I think, really what made the difference because I was getting really, really high concentrations of the phytochemistry of, of, of the, the plant. And I think that's where people fall short is they're just not getting enough. Um, so that, that was really important. But I still like tinctures. I still use them from time to time. I still like trying new herbs because sometimes you just kind of want to get that feel of the herb and what it tastes like and, and that kind of energy. So, um, yeah, it, it's good to do both. Yeah. And I, I, I definitely did both on my protocol with Minkoff. Um, he had the powdered extracts and then he actually had us put the, um, drop, how many ever 30 drops or whatever of the liquid into a capsule, but you had to take the capsule right then you couldn't pre-make them. You had to like shake the bottle, put the drops in the capsule and take it instantly because the herbs he basically said would start to disintegrate the capsule over time. So you basically, you would have had to just put them in your mouth or put them in that capsule and take it that way. And I found yeah. that to be pretty beneficial. Um, I thought they worked really, really well. I had like one set for the Epstein bar and then another set for the lime. And then 
um, they both rotated as well. So I would take a certain one for however many ever weeks. And then once the, those ran out, I would switch to a different set of uh, herbs. So I don't know if that's because your immune system's getting used to the herbal protocol or whatnot, what his thought process was with that. But he did have me switch back and forth. You know, it, it's um, all of these chemicals, especially, you know, if you're doing dry powders, can be irritating to the stomach. So I think everybody, uh, you know, it it it, um, yeah, it works to go slow and, you know, it can take time. Um, we typically recommend that people um, take their supplements with something like coconut milk. Right. So. You've heard of liposomal supplements, right? So what a liposomal supplement is, is they, you can do it with a drug, a powdered herb, anything, um, glutathione, anything else, where you basically take that substance and you emulsify it. You shake it up with some kind of fat, typically uh, something like a coconut fat, and the fat will surround the particles and it it helps protect the stomach in the initial stages, but also helps uh, helps with absorption. But the problem with liposomal supplements is you're getting a lot of fat and not much of the actual supplement. So we tell people to take it with just coconut milk, like you find at the grocery store in the carton. Um, and what you you know when your stomach starts moving, it emulsifies it and it basically makes a liposomal supplement out of it. So it's a little less irritating to the gut. It helps absorption. Yeah, and some of the liposomals are super expensive. I always wonder um, crazy, yeah. if you're even getting what you're paying for out of them liposomals. Sometimes you're you're not, and that's you know we we call this a we we call it taking supplements with or you know the capsules with coconut milk a poor man's liposomal <laughs> supplement. So it it basically does the same thing. And are you? Uh... Uh, recommending it like uh, MCT style or just full fat like coconut or would that have different effects? Um, well, mo you know, most uh, like coconut milk from the grocery store, it's going to have the level of fat uh, of MCTs in it that, that you're going to get that effect. Um, and it just makes it palatable too. Um, so, you know, typically, I mean, you know, the capsules can kind of get stuck in your throat. I always take them with some kind of milk. I typically use some kind of plant-based milk. So it, may, it, it makes it go down easier. It probably protects the stomach some, and it probably improves absorption too. Interesting. And they could even, maybe if they really wanted to do like the canned of like full fat coconut milk, and you'd really have, uh, I mean, higher calorie also, but also could get a lot more fat out of them uh, you can coconut cans for sure. That's probably a good way. Um, when we're talking about herbs, I guess I would, uh, I don't want to jump over this part. I know a lot of this stuff is like cheap herbs from China and they can have heavy metals and different, uh, toxin exposures going on in them. So how do people differentiate like where to buy their herbs and how to look out for uh, any toxin exposure that they may carry? Yeah, I think it's it's finding either reputable companies or reputable providers and um, like it or not, to get stuff, you're going to have to get some things from China because they're just not being produced in any significant quantities or the quality. Um, and it's um, 
you know, when we first started our company, I did all this myself, but now we've got a supply chain manager who does nothing but this, and that is source the ingredients. Um, and, you know, ideally, it'd be great if you could just grow everything right there on a farm, but it's just not possible because different things grow in different uh, environments. And you really want the optimal environment to enhance the phytochemistry of the herb. Um, so some things are going to come from China. Some things are going to come from India or the Amazon. Um, and so one is developing a reputation with reliable suppliers. And so any good extract, any, you know, if, I, if, if we're buying a batch of, you know, several kilograms of an herb, um, we buy only herbs that have a certificate of analysis. So what that means is the supplier uh, sent a sample of that particular lot off to a third party that tested it for heavy metals, for bacterial contamination, for uh, pesticide and other contaminants, and also did the testing to just provide uh, uh, proof that it was the actual herb that they're selling because it was interesting. I mean, they've done different evaluations, looking at some big companies like GNC and found that half of the product didn't even have the herb that they said they did on the bottle, you know? So you get that third-party testing and it's called a certificate of analysis. That's step one. With our company, we have a step two. We actually buy the extract or buy that batch of that, of that extract and we send it to our own lab because we don't quite trust their certificate of analysis. We want to make sure. So we get a, we get, do a second level of testing on our own just to make sure they haven't pulled a fast one on us, you know? And yeah, our suppliers, I mean, just about all the time it matches up. Sometimes there are minor disagreements between the two, but it's just that other level of uh, security to know that you're getting what you want. And then we do testing during the manufacturing process. So, you know, they actually pull capsules and bottle uh, capsules off the line to make sure that it's being mixed properly, that you're getting the right ratios of the ingredients that you actually put in there. So three levels of testing. Um, and, you know, I, I, there are other companies that do that. Um, but I would say, it's probably half the companies out there. There are an awful lot of companies that don't do that kind of testing. And so, you know, if 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 it's not talking about that. So, you know, if you look on your label and you see, well, it's a proprietary blend and they don't tell you that it's a standardized extract and they don't list out the milligram quantities of each of those ingredients, figure they're using substandard products. And I would say that's Oh, more than half the products I'm seeing out there that are being sold for Lyme disease. So there's a lot of junk out there and it's finding a company that is willing to do that level of testing. You're going to pay a little bit more. There's no way around it. This testing costs money. Um, it, you know, it, it almost doubles the value, the cost of the product, but we just think it, it's essential to do that. Um, it's just so remarkably important. Um, yeah. So, the other thing that I'm saying, and I just wanted to mention this, and I won't mention products, but I've, you know, I've had uh, over the years from time to time, I've had people say, 
man, I could only take like six drops of that product and boy, did I hurt bad. It was a powerful formula. I said, oh, wow, that's interesting. So I get on their website and I go down the list of herbs and I found that, well, yeah, it's got Japanese knotweed and Chinese skullcap. And wait a minute, I don't recognize that herb. And I look it up and it's a poison. It's a poisonous herb. And it's like, why would they put that in there? It's because people feel something. It makes them sick. So they go, wow, that's working really well. And I'm seeing this more and more often. So I tell people, be cautious with what you're buying because there is uh, there is deception out there. Wow, that's insane that uh, yeah. something can be labeled that way. And I've never heard of it actually like being a mixture with some of like poisonous herbs. But I do like the products that I recommend to people uh, tend to be more expensive. And I always try to tell them that it's like, you know, you can spend money. You're just basically wasting money if you don't know what's in there. You're not getting what you pay for. So why wouldn't you just pay a little bit more for something that you at least know what it is and then maybe take less supplements or something? I'd rather you spend more and get what you pay for than to buy a bunch of cheap stuff and you're not really getting what you even uh, what it says yep. on the label or a poisonous uh, type of substance or just contaminated yep. and just not looked after properly. So the supplement world is like the wild, wild west. It's not regulated as well as people think. It is. But, you know, there's so much good out there that that um, and, and the problem is, you know, we struggle with this. Do we want it regulated? Because, quite frankly, the problem with the FDA is, is they understand drugs, but they really don't know what they're regulating with supplements. So you end up with regulations that don't work well. And so we struggle with this every day. Um, but, you know, if you do your homework, I mean, you can find some really good choices. I would, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that people should be afraid of herbs. I think herbs are the solution. I think there are a lot of great products out there, not just ours. Um, and so, you know, it, 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 you just got to do your homework a little bit and be willing to pay a little bit more for quality and purity and potency. Absolutely. And that's a half of the reason, um, for the show to kind of bring on people that I feel like do the testing and, uh, cause a lot of people, they don't want to do the homework, but they may listen to a, you know, a couple hours of a show on their drive or whatever. And right. then if it seems reasonable or if they feel that the uh, integrity is there, then they will, uh, you know, maybe purchase some of your products. And hopefully that is uh, helping people along the way with this show for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Do you have anything else you want to touch on about herb before I dive into uh, some of these other uh, uh, things that you use on your protocol? Well, yeah, just, just very, but just in summary, um, you know, taking multiple herbs, taking blends of herbs is important. And what you're doing is just broadening your spectrum of different kinds of microbes that you can cover. And no matter what you test for, you can't test for everything that is there, I promise. So the herbs have broad spectrum coverage. But again, the herbs aren't just killing microbes. The herbs are also doing things to protect cells from stress, which allow cells to recover and that is the key to getting well. Absolutely. Well said. I love that. And I, herbs were a big part of my protocol, but I like a lot of this other stuff that you uh, outline as well. And I use some of it uh, in, in my protocol. So I want to dive into some of that towards the end of the show. Is that cool? Yeah. 
Awesome. So you talk about a little bit about like bioidentical vitamins and stuff like that. So uh, do you have any of these type of like vitamins and other supplements that you typically type to, to recommend on top of the herbs? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, th I think it's important to right up front differentiate between um, a, a nutrient or vitamin, vitamin like substances and an herb. So what we're getting from the herbs is this protective chemistry. We're also getting these regulatory systems of the plant so they can help balance hormones and immune functions and things like that. But herbs are nutrient sparse. You know, they're not good sources of nutrients at all. So when we talk about nutrients, what we're talking about is things that cells need to function. And different cells in the body need different things. It's like our heart burns mostly fat, our brain burns mostly glucose. Um, but all cells need basically the raw materials to do their job. So all cells are doing a function, like some cells are contracting muscles, some cells are firing brain impulses, some cells like thyroid cells are producing thyroid hormone. Well, they need raw materials to do that job. They also need raw materials to generate energy and they need raw materials to, to, to replace parts that get worn, worn out, both in the cell and in the mitochondria that supply the power. So cells are working hard. They're constantly burning through parts and through a process called autophagy, they're constantly pruning worn out proteins, DNA, mitochondria, breaking those things down into component parts, pulling in uh, fresh nutrients and rebuilding themselves. So that's the beauty of cells is they're constantly remaking themselves. So they need good nutrients to do that. Um, so they need a little bit of carbohydrate, a little bit of fat to generate energy. Not a lot, too much. It's like throwing too much coal in a steam locomotive. It's going to blow the engine. So they need just the right amount. Our cells are designed to run lean, but they also need all these other raw materials and especially mitochondria need uh, substances. But then we have other kinds of nutrients like glutathione which is 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 uh, the super antioxidant. So you've got glutathione, superoxide, desmutase, other kinds of things that are protecting cells and protecting mitochondria for free radical damage. But we're doing a lot of other things. So our 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 vitamins that we talk about, our B vitamins, they all play a role in energy production inside the mitochondria. So the you know, mitochondria are constantly turning these things over. Um, glutathione is also protecting cells, but has functions in detoxification. So we need a kind of a steady supply of these things. If you're healthy and eating a regular diet, that's a healthy diet, you know, what we talked about with lots of vegetables and good nutrients, you really don't need to take anything extra. Your cells are going to do fine. But when our cells are stressed, they work harder. They need more nutrients. They're turning over more of this stuff and they have a lot more free radicals. So they need more protection. Now, the herbs are helping with that. It's interesting that, you know, you look at taking a multivitamin or whatever, um, you know, you're, you're, you're giving yourself this load of nutrients at one time. Well, your cells are kind of needing that all the time as a steady flow. So getting it through food is your best way. But. If, if people are chronically ill 
you know, they are using a higher level of nutrients. So I think, you know, they need a, a, having extra is a good idea. Um, so extra B vitamins, but in the form that the body can use, it's like folic acid. That's not a natural B vitamin that our body uses. Our body uses methyl tetrahydrofolate um, or folinic acid is another name for it. So having those things in the correct form is important. And then nutrients like glutathione. Yeah, I think we need lots of extra of that when we're under stress. Vitamin C, we need extra when we're under stress. So, so especially acute stress, you know, it's like, I don't take that much extra vitamin C on a daily basis, but if I have a viral illness and my body is stressed, my cells are stressed, I'll take a thousand every couple of hours until my symptoms get better. So it kind of <clears> depends on, on, you know, whether it's an acute stress or chronic stress. And so we, we want this, our cells to have a ready supply to those nutrients that they need. Absolutely. I kind of want to break down a couple of categories that you went through. Um, as far as like B vitamins, do you like, I found I do a lot better. It seems like with uh, kind of like the organ meat supplements as compared to like the synthetic B vitamins. Do you recommend any kind of like organ supplements for people getting B vitamins or do you like the synthetic stuff? It, it, it... Yeah, I, I think you can go with either source. It depends on, you know, the, the, um, I, you, what we use in our products are, you know, synthetically derived using like bacterial recombination and things like that. But, um, it's, if you're doing it in the form that the body can, can, can absorb and assimilate, that's the difference. So most of your multivitamin products just aren't going to have it in that form. So I think you can go both ways and, you know, you kind of find what works for you. Um, but your average multivitamin product isn't going to work well for most people. And it's just, you know, your body, your body is already stressed and then having to figure out how to absorb this chemical and change it into the form it can actually use that just requires more energy, you know, it's just more work. So we want to save the body and our cells as much work as we can and give it to the, give it, you know, supply it in the form that's most natural. Yeah, that makes little sense. There's a lot of good companies that are actually doing the, uh, like the B vitamins and stuff in a more active form. And so people can find that quite anywhere yeah. on the market nowadays. Uh, with vitamin C, uh, have did I, you know, I, there's been a back and forth in the holistic community about, uh, whole food vitamin C and with the flavonoids and all that. And then, uh, to be honest, I, I was doing that for a while and I kind of found better relief with the ascorbic acid. So do you have a opinion about one versus the other? Um, well, you know, just straight vitamin C products can irritate the stomach. So something that is buffered. So, at, you know, ascorbic acetate instead of acid can sometimes, um, be a little bit more comfortable in your stomach because it's alkaline. Um, but vitamin C is one that is pretty readily utilized in most forms. Um, it, the question is, do you need it? And I think it, Vitamin C becomes important if you're uh, especially stressed or acutely stressed. It was really interesting. Um, 
there was a study done that caught my attention years ago. It's been maybe a couple of decades, but you know, some things just stick in your mind. Um, humans and primates are the only creatures that don't make vitamin C. Everything else makes vitamin C. Cats, dogs, other creatures, rats make vitamin C. They make all they need. Um, we actually probably did at one point, but our ancestral diets were so high in vitamin C sources, we just gave that up. The formula to make vitamin C is actually buried inside of our genes. We just don't have access to it anymore. So most creatures do. So this was this was a rat study. So they took a rat and it's just kind of hanging out in the cage. It has plenty of food. It's happy. It's just hanging out. And they measured how much vitamin C it was producing. And they found it was producing the equivalent of us taking about 200 to 500 milligrams of vitamin C, probably what you'd get in a healthy diet. And that's all it was producing. So then they stressed the rat. They just made it angry and stressed the heck out of it and made its life miserable. And then they measured up its vitamin C production. And it ramped up to the equivalent of us taking 21,000 milligrams of vitamin C a day. It was amazing. So, yeah, what it says is when our cells are stressed, we really do need a lot of vitamin C. We're going to turn it over a lot. So, you know, I didn't take but about 500 to 1,000 during my Lyme recovery. I think chronic stress is probably a little different than acute stress. But um, if I have like a viral illness, not only do I load up on all of the herbs, I take about a thousand of vitamin C every hour or two until the symptoms are gone. Um, and I definitely notice a difference when I do that. Um, I've typically always used a buffered vitamin C and, and I can tell the difference when I do vitamin C. But uh, I think there are a lot of different forms of it. And vitamin C, I don't think we have to be quite as particular about as some of the B vitamins. Um, you know, there, there are two different types of vitamins and they're used differently and they're absorbed differently. Yeah, that's amazing. I was actually watching a lecture about ascorbic acid. Now, I can't remember who was the lecturer at this point, but um, he was talking about the same type of kind of like burn rate you're talking about. And uh, he said, you know, back when, when stress was low and everything, we were just living with nature and had way less of these microbes and everything. You know, the half-life of vitamin C was like 30 days. But in these, you know, sicker patients that he's treating now, the half-life of vitamin C can be as low as 30 minutes. So that's yeah. like a drastic change depending on the physiology and the state of your body. And that would make a lot of sense that you would need to keep replenishing that vitamin C when you're in a very damaged state. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I think that's, that's another good way to look at it. Um, that being said, now, I, you know, I do believe in, in nu nutrient supplementation, um, especially your, you know, your, your, your vitamins, your minerals, um, vitamin C, glutathione, but, there's another way to look at it, too. You know, if you gave me one or the other the herbs or the vitamins, I couldn't take both. I'd pick the herbs every single time. And the reason is because the herbs are neutralizing free radicals. You know, they're suppressing the microbes. 
they're doing everything you, they can to reduce cellular stress. So if you're reducing cellular stress, you're reducing nutrient demand. So even though the herbs aren't a good source of nutrients, they reduce demand for nutrients. So, you know, cells, cells are, are, are using less of them. So taking both, that makes a lot of sense. But one or the other, and I take the herbs every time and a good yeah, diet. Get it. Yeah. And, um, you know, the diet's tough, I think, sometimes as well because of like the digestive function. I'm not sure yeah. how much we're assimilating from just the diet. So that's why the supplementation comes into play as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Really important. Because mm -hmm. I mean, I was using digestive enzymes and everything. And I still was just like, I, I still always feel hungry, you know, even though yeah. I ate a lot. And, you know, I had to take a lot of the supplements to kind of just get in all the nutrients that I needed. I think I was just yeah. burning through a lot of the, like I was saying, vitamin C, B vitamins and different things. One thing that I actually uh, found pretty beneficial that I liked was the essential amino acids. Are you a fan of that uh, at all as a stack with your therapy? Um, you know, there are a lot of different ways of getting your essential amino acids. And if you're doing a healthy diet, you're, you're getting plenty. I get, you know, it, it really depends on your protein turnover during the day. And, um, so typically I get most of mine through just a healthy diet. I like, you know, I like to get my protein from meat. I mean, it just has a better complement of essential fatty acids. Um, I do collagen supplements pretty regularly, which are giving you, you know, high levels of certain uh, essential amino acids, but it's giving you the full spectrum. There's no doubt about it. Um, so, you know, I, I think if you're doing, um, so there are a lot of ways to get it. Um, plant sources, I think, it, it, I think can be reliable, but it's not quite as good as some of your meat sources. So especially if you're going vegan, um, doing some kind of essential amino acid supplement, I think is a reasonable thing to do. Yeah. And I mean, to me, I was eating a lot of, I, I get all my uh, red meat from uh, white oak pasture. So it's all regenerative and everything like that. And I love that yeah. stuff and feel really good on on that. Um, also do some wild caught salmon and stuff, but um, yeah, something about the essential amino acids, I think Dr. Minkoff would say, I th what was his percentage? I think he said your detoxification protocol can go about uh, 30% faster with about 10, yeah. 10 grams of essential amino acids. I think it just really helps. And it's also uh, bypassing a lot of that digestion that you might be having issues with while you're having the gut dysfunction as well. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, so I mean, he makes up essential amino acid himself, so maybe he's biased and he's wrote a whole book about it, but uh, he seemed to have some pretty good information on that, and, and I found yeah. it to be pretty useful, too. Cool. I think the potential for harm would be very low, so I don't, yeah. I don't think, I think that's a reasonable thing to do. Mm -hmm. Are um, you recommending, I know Lyme can really attack the collagen, are you, are you recommending a good collagen source when people are recovering as well? Yeah, they're... There are various different brands out there and you, and some have been sensationalized like bone broth and that sort of thing. Um, I think it's just pick, pick a good grant brand that has a pure product. Um, it's, you know, it, it's, I think people have the misconception that the collagen is being consumed by the microbes and 
that's not really the case. So again, these microbes are emerging from cells and from tissues and the immune system is attacking the microbes, which is that is what's breaking down the collagen. Um, so basically we're always turning over collagen, right? So, and, and collagen basically is the support molecule or one of the support molecules that holds our cells together. It keeps us intact. It's also the connective tissue that um, keeps it, holds our bones and joints together. So we have a lot of collagen in the body. And so this, it's a really important support molecule. Um, so taking care of your collagen, um, uh, things that I call collagen crunchers. So if you're eating a high glucose diet, glucose is a bad collagen cruncher. Um, eating a high, like fat, lots of fried foods. The fats in, in, uh, fried food are free radicals and they break down collagen. Sun breaks down collagen. Not getting sleep inhibits your ability to repair collagen. So when we talk about ligaments and cartilage, you know, everybody talks about, you know, we wear our cartilage down over time. You know, part of aging is we get thinner and thinner cartilage. And it's like we're just wearing that stuff away. And that's not what's actually happening. So cartilage is a matrix of collagen and other kinds of uh, support molecules. It's constantly re being remodeled by cells embedded in the collagen, embedded in the, the cartilage matrix called chondrocytes. And so, you know, they're constantly reworking. I mean, because we're always wearing out collagen, right? So they're constantly reworking the collagen and rebuilding the collagen. So it's really important um, to, to keep those cells healthy. So what's happening with aging is people are losing chondrocytes not the cartilage. So when you, you, when you lose your chondrocytes, that's when you lose your cartilage. So very interestingly, my cartilage was shot around age 50 when I was, uh, when I was struggling with Lyme disease. Um, now at age 65, my joints are fine because I didn't wipe out all my chondrocytes. The chondrocytes rebuilt my cartilage. So yes, you know, when you're, when you have an increased turnover of collagen, supplying your body with the raw materials is a good idea. It just saves work. It saves energy. So you're not absorbing all of that. You're basically breaking down the cartilage into the component uh, pieces or amino acids. And it's giving your chondrocytes the raw material that they need to, to rebuild, uh, the, that. So it's, um, but, you know, it's also suppressing the microbes in that area. All right. So an interesting um, little, little tangent, if I could take one interesting study I came upon recently was a, uh, I think it was a, a late 40s uh, female who uh, had had worn her knees down, maybe she early 50s, early 50s, like around 53 or so, worn her knees down and was and had a chondrocyte replacement, right? So what they do is, you know, so her, her cartilage was gone, her knees was were worn out. So they they go in and they find a little piece of healthy cartilage somewhere in the body. They pull it out 
they extract the chondrocytes, they regrow, they grow lots more chondrocytes in culture. So they were her chondrocytes that they grew more of. And then they inject them back in the knee. They were doing this several years ago. Now we're using stem cells more, but the chondrocytes, you know, those new fresh chondrocytes rebuild the cartilage and they had really good results with it. So interestingly, this person, when they went back and found her history, she had had a tick bite with an EM rash about 10 years prior to that. No symptoms, never had any symptoms of Lyme disease, none. But she remembered she had this rash way back when. So they extracted, they did this procedure, they extracted the chondrocytes, they grew them in culture, they injected them back into her knee, and she had this terrible reaction that the knee became swollen and all the cartilage in her knee was broken down. And they tested the fluid and they found live bacteria, uh, live Borrelia spirochetes in the fluid and in all of the chondrocytes. So those chondrocytes had been her chondrocytes, probably part of the reason she didn't have any cartilage was the microbe had been there chronically, just low grade, but not causing symptoms. You know, she was otherwise healthy, but the, the spirochetes were inside these chondrocytes in dormant. So when they grew more chondrocytes, they also grew Borrelia, they injected it back in her knees and they had a heyday interesting story and it just you know it talks about that yeah you can have microbes that are dormant in your tissues and suppressing these microbes and keeping them suppressed with herbs is really important you got to take care of those cells so taking care of your cartilage is more about taking care of your chondrocytes than anything else Wow, that's amazing. And I, I found great benefit with using like collagen source. Uh, I know you talked about Great Lakes. And then I also, uh, I've recently been using perfect supplements for a while. They test for glyphosate and things like that and yeah. uh, seem to do pretty good with that. And I know there's a bunch on the market now, but uh, definitely people can easily find a good collagen source and uh, get the re kind of, I think just if, if it's getting broken down so much, probably a good idea to try to help that regenerate quite a bit. Like you said, it just takes yeah. that extra energy. Your body's going to try to do it either way. So if you can just give it the raw material, the peptide form preferably. And uh, so you can just take a little bit of the load off and kind of helps. Yeah. Um, I know you talked a little bit about CBD as well, and I found amazing benefits with CBD, especially for sleep, but overall pain, it seemed like. Um, do you do a lot of CBD in your protocols? Uh, yeah, I think CD, CBD is a wonderful adjunct, and it's, um, and you know, mar medical marijuana also has a place too. You know, I think if we had been relying more on medical marijuana, if it had been legalized, we, we might not be having the opioid epidemic that we've been having um, because both are good for pain. Um, so what we're doing with CBD is modulating a system in the body called the endocannabinoid system. So it is kind of a overseeing regulatory system that basically fine tunes everything in the body, endorphins, uh, mood hormones, pain hormones. I mean, everything in the body is modified 
um, it, it's kind of like, um, you know, it, it, the, 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 uh, a knob on your radio that you can per turn up or down the volume. So, so what we're doing with endocannabinoids in the body is basically turning up or down the volume in every system in the body. So it has this just wonderful fine tuning property. Um, when we take CBD, we're affecting that system. And interestingly, when you look at CBD, it binds uh, very weakly to the receptors in the system. So that has the effect of upregulating the system. And what I mean by that is you make more endocannabinoid receptors and you make more endocannabinoids. So CBD has the effect of boosting our natural system. And that's the difference in CBD and THC. So when you take CTHC, THC binds that very tightly to those uh, that system. So you have this euphoric or, or exaggerated response, but it also up down regulates the system. So you make fewer receptors and fewer of your natural endorphins. So that's why you can become habituated to THC, but you can't become habituated to CBD. So again, both can be valuable, um, but typically THC is more valuable if you're using it intermittently and in combination with CBD. CBD and CBD oil, when you're using the oil, you're getting the whole herb. It's an herb, you know, so you're getting all that other chemistry and all the other chemicals that are beneficial too that are working with the CBD. So taking CBD isolate is very different than taking CBD oil with a full complement of all the phytochemicals there. So with CBD, you can't get addicted to it, no matter how much you take. Um, so it's really, really safe. It's actually been used. It's been one of the things that they found to be very valuable for people that uh, want to come off of heroin or alcohol that are that have addiction, it reduces cravings, it reduces withdrawal symptoms. So CBD has some really wonderful properties. For Lyme disease, here's the substance that you know has this regulatory effect of calming the immune system, boosting endorphins, helping with pain, helping with sleep. Um, without any risk of habituation like you would find with drugs or other kinds of things. Yeah, for sure. And if you do need a pretty high dose, <clears throat> and it can be a little cost costly to get a good product. That's um, a big thing. But, you know, so, but if you have the funds and uh, that's available to you, it's easily found, it's legal, um, I'd highly recommend that if you can afford it for sure. <clears throat> Um, I know we're getting a little short on the couple hours. You want to do a couple more questions or um, you want to, yeah, we can do, do a couple do more. Okay. We'll do some, maybe some rapid fire um, questions here. Um, what about uh, peptides? I used like three different peptides during my protocol. Um, one was LL37. One was thymosin alpha. The other one was BPC157. Are you yeah. finding good, good uh, experiences with peptides? Uh, thymosin, yes. Um, I ended up finding that, um, you know, I tried that. That was one of the early things that I tried, and I felt like it did help. Um, but ultimately, I felt like the herbs helped better, so I'd used it less and less. Um, so that that is a good option. There are some good products out there. Uh, I tried uh, BPC-157, tried injections, tried some lingual 
I never got anything out of it. I mean, I know people do. Um, so I think it's fine. Um, so I think there's value in the peptides. Um, but the caution that I give people and, and the logic, I mean, I try to put logic in everything that we do. So what these things are, are chemical messengers, right? So we have lots of chemical messengers, thousands of hormones and, and other way, other chemical messengers. What those things are, are either cells messaging cells or the brain messaging cells to coordinate functions. So all of it is about cellular communication. And you've got all of this going on. So all the cells in the body are trying to keep in touch with all the other cells in the body all of the time. So you've got lots of messaging going on to coordinate those functions. And your brain is you know, overseeing uh, what's going on outside the body and inside the body and using nerves and other hormone pathways to keep those things regulated. Um, so you have to be really careful about how you give any kind of hormone or chemical messenger. So think about it this way. So that communication that's going on with the cells in your body is a conversation. And it's a very dynamic conversation that's changing almost on a second by second basis. When you give a hormone, an injection of any kind of hormone, and some are different than others, you know, we can get away with thymosin pretty well, we can get away with thyroid hormone pretty well, but you're giving a monologue, right? You're not giving, you know, it's, it's not changing. You're just here, take this. So it's like, you had it, it, it's like a, a group of, if you had a a group of people sitting around a table trying to solve the problem you know and they've got this big complicated problem and they're talking there's a lot of dialogue going on and somebody walks in the room laps down a, a, a stool stands up with a bullhorn and starts screaming one word hello hello Hello, hello, constantly. That's what we're doing with hormones sometimes, right? It's, you know, we're, we can disrupt that conversation that's going on in the body. So, so that it can work, but you have to be really careful with it. And I don't think anybody knows what they're doing absolutely with these things. So I try to think of it that way. And I think that's why sometimes hormones work. Sometimes they don't work so well or they don't give us the desired effect because, you know, we don't know the language, right? It's, it's like, um, you know, we've got, we've, we've got a few words of a whole language and we don't know the language. We don't know how it works. And we're just throwing words out. Let's just throw words and see what they do, right? <laughs> So sometimes one of those words might connect, but not always, and it can be disruptive. So that's just a weird way of thinking about hormones, but I've always tried to be really careful with them. Yeah, so I, I mean, it's probably smart to be somewhat cautious uh, with some of the new experimental stuff. And then also, you know, as someone who was desperate like me and me golf seemed like a smart guy, I just 
went with it. And he was really I, did, I did it too. I, yeah, I'm not knocking you. I did them all too. <laughs> when you just feel that way, you're just like, I, I was on like 50 different things. I don't care. I was just spending my whole day injecting oh, yeah. and, and taking herbs and doing it I all. I was my own guinea pig. You know, I ordered that stuff. Um, you know, you, I, you know, you, you can order it from various kind of peptide labs around the country. Um, yeah, I did all that stuff too. <laughs> but ultimately, I found that just, you know, I, I, I here's the deal. Um, if you create an environment inside your body that your cells can recover from stress and regain what the the control of the microbes, then your body is going to do this. Your your cells, your body is constantly working for you. So I kind of move toward this model of creating a healing environment inside my body giving my cells everything that they needed to do rather than trying to manipulate their functions. And I think that's where we go wrong in conventional medicine with drugs, with hormones, with a lot of things. And instead of really trying to help the body heal itself, we're trying to do that. We're trying to manipulate everything back into shape. And sometimes it just doesn't work very well. So the things that worked for me the best were a really good clean diet, a low stress environment, lots of sleep, uh, getting plenty of regular exercise, uh, cleaning up my environment. So I live with clean air and clean water and clean food and then taking herbs every day and doing those things consistently for years and years did more for me than all the other things that I tried. And, you know, I tried a bunch of stuff. You know, I tried the... Uh, 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 miracle mineral solution, MMS. I mean, I tried a little bit of everything, but <laughs> those are the things that I kept coming back to is the things that it made the most difference for me. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. That, that foundation is just hard. I tell people like, you know, you got to get clean water, like your tap water is gross. Yep. It's got so much contaminants in there. So I start with a good, clean, structured water. I do that. And then the minerals. And then the food, all, most of it comes from the farm. You know, if not, I try to get everything organic that I can. And um, just working with the foundation really is the best. But then all this other stuff are just kind of like advanced if you have the funds, if you have the money. Yeah. And uh, just that's kind of how it goes. And this this next question is kind of one of those advanced things. And uh, it's kind of a, one that really helped me, though. And uh, that's ozone. Are you a fan of ozone? I did not do ozone. I think ozone has some value, um, you know, and and it just uh, it was never practical for me. Uh, there were different times that I thought ah, maybe it's time I need to go do ozone, and I would try a new herb and just really you know tune up my health habits even more, and I would get over that little hump, and I never did it. Um, I think there are technologies out there that can help us, and that may be one of them. I mean, it's on my list, but it's one that you just, you have to be careful of. You know, it's it's like, are you promoting cellular health? Are you creating an environment that is beneficial for cells? And, you know, we know it has some, some it does help with the immune system in various ways. Maybe it does reduce um um, microbes just you know in inside our bloodstream uh that dormant microbiome that's being reactivated so you know i i think we are getting some benefits but 
it can be pretty toxic to your cells and your tissues too. So, you know, it's, it's one that goes both ways. Um, there are a lot of things out there. You know, there's pulse electromagnetic pre frequency therapy. There are Rife machines. There are a lot of things out there, um, all of which have pretty steep price tags on them. The one that's gotten the most of my attention, the very most recently, is red light therapy. Um, I think red light therapy, it has a lot of good evidence behind it. And what we're doing is using... Uh, uh, regular frequency red light that we can see, and then uh, near infrared, which is different than far infrared, near infrared that we can't see. And that penetrates pretty deeply into your tissues. Um, and there are studies showing that what it is doing is actually in enhancing uh, mitochondrial functions. It's actually um, stimulating mitochondria uh, or energizing mitochondria is probably a better way to put it, and increasing cellular ATP. So we're basically giving cells more energy to work with. So, you know, stressed cells are low energy. They burn their energy down. So if you can energize your cells and give them more to work with, then they can heal, they can repair. And I actually think that's probably what we're doing with PEMF and RIFE and a lot of other things. You know, everybody talks about Rife machines that, you know, you're, you're tuning a specific frequency of energy to kill specific microbes. And I'm looking at it and going, but the body has 40,000 different species of microbes in it. How can we tune to, to, to only specific things? Um, and, you know, but I think more what we're doing, and, and it hasn't really been studied deeply, um, you know, what we're doing is energizing cells. You know, we we have uh, low intensity energy um, in the form of electrons or photons in in with light that are actually providing energy uh, to cells without increasing free radical damage, which is exactly what our cells need to recover. So I think anything that does that can be valuable. Of those things, the, those those different modalities, rife, PEMF, or red light, red life is a bargain. Um, cost of it's very cost effective. You know, you can get a small panel for two hundred bucks and a full body panel for less than a thousand. So it's a pretty good deal compared to other things. So that has gotten my attention quite a lot lately. Yeah, I like um, personally what I use is um, I don't know if you know Robbie Bessner or not. I had him on the show. He makes the Therasage sauna, so it's um, like a portable sauna. It has near, mid, and far infrared as far as the sauna goes. But then I've heard about buy, it. If you buy the deluxe version, he has three different um, wavelengths of red light panels in the front. So you're, yeah. you're in the sauna, but then you're also getting the red light therapy on the on the. Uh, front just you're already in the sauna so you got the red light panels in there as well and i found that to be a great healing tool across and it is like 1200 bucks but if you go to like one of these spas or whatever they're charging you like a dollar a minute to use their infrared sauna right. so i mean over time for just daily use or whatever it makes a lot of sense yeah i think pairing those two technologies is a great idea i wish him well i think it's a i, I think that's a a, a, a cool thing I don't think it substitutes for all the other things that we've talked about, but it's just another thing that you can do 
that again, you know, what we're doing is energizing your cells and we're helping to create that environment that promotes healing. And that's really important. Yeah. And I th you're right. I would have never um, gotten to where I'm at with just that sauna alone. I tried that. I had, I bought one. It was one of the first things I bought because it seemed like just an overall detox. I take some charcoal yeah. binders and get in there. And um, it, I don't think I would ever got there with that alone. I mean, I've, quite frankly, I had that thing for probably a year before I even got diagnosed with Lyme and I didn't get better. Yeah. So it definitely took a protocol and that was just a good addition on top. And yeah. uh, I wanted to mention one last thing since you were on Rife and Frequencies before we get off here is uh, I, I had the Spooky 2. I played around with this other company, Scalar Light, and uh, had some pretty solid results with that. But recently I've been playing with this... Um, new company they make the lila q like quantum blocks i'm not sure if you've ever seen those but now they mm -hmm. have this um company called quantum upgrade so basically you can go on there and you can kind of adjust the intensity of it it's like based on the hawkins scale of consciousness and mm -hmm. uh, they're getting some pretty good science data behind that as Very far good. as like um lowering parasitic load bacterial load blood flow um, you know, you can push it too fast, just like any detox protocol, but that's probably been my favorite uh, frequency. And nice then what, what you can do is you can even add these frequency bundles on top. Um, I actually just interviewed the CEO last week. And so like the frequencies come with like inner peace or uh, initiating your inner healer. And it's based on these like energy medicine frequencies. And uh, I've had the inner peace on recently and to be honest I, since i've had lime or whatever i don't think i've ever slept as good as i have since i've been using nice. these quantum frequencies and then adding in the inner peace frequency as well and that's been lowering my anxiety you know kind of my adhd that i still have a little nice. bit with the with it so that might be something that you can check out and you can do a free week they give you like a seven day free trial it's called quantum upgrade so you can look into that and they have all the research and science right on the website you might find that beneficial with yourself or some of your patients as far as the frequency stuff goes. Is that the name of the company, Quantum Upgrade? Yeah, the Leela Q, L-E-E-L-A-Q is like where they have, they have all these like um, like quantum capsules you can wear that kind of give you frequencies and frequency cards and these quantum blocks. But then the Quantum Upgrade portion of them is just basically you, it's kind of, it's it's very woo woo. You just put in your name, your birth date, and where you were born, and you like go into the quantum field. But I promise, if people play with that, they definitely they'll feel it. And I have a whole show coming out with him about it, and so something cool. you might want to check out because awesome. the science yeah. is pretty good. I, I will. I I, I love you know, researching new things. Yeah, so, I, I'm really interested in the in the future of like frequency medicine. I think that there is potential there. I just don't think that we had the right, all the right technology with the spooky. I think they were on the right path, but as everything it's going to build. And I think the leaders in the game right now are that uh, Lee LeCue quantum upgrade yeah. company. Yeah. Well, I think what we're doing with all of these things is positively mon modulating cellular functions and probably mm -hmm. energizing cells. So, you know, thinking about it from that point of view, you know, it, it, it does make sense that we could gain benefit from these things. So, and, uh, you know, I, I think that's where the future of, uh, recovery medicine should be going is 
looking at these things that promote uh, cellular functions um, or modulate cellular functions in a positive way. Yeah, and I mean, I sure. think it's like 25 or 30 bucks a month. It's, I mean, it's probably cheaper than most supplements you can buy. And then you can do like these bundles on there where you can pick four or five because you can do your cell phone, you can do your business or your house and kind of play with the frequencies and the level of consciousness scale at like, you know, wherever you're at because it's, been shown to like reduce EMF. It doesn't like, you know, negate EMFs, but what it does is sends a frequency to kind of neutralize it and your body's able right. to kind of defend itself a little bit more. So I do like that. I've been, I've played with quite a few companies and this has been my favorite. Yeah. Nice. Right. Well, that's nice to know about. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, the, you know, those are, that's one of the things that is hard to deal with is the EMFs that we're all getting, you know, it's, um, you know, each one of our cells, gives off electrical energy in an aura and that that surrounds us all of our cells collectively give us an aura and so those energy pathways those energy meridians created by our cells working together is is you know what you know much of chinese medicine is based on acupuncture qigong tai chi um but yeah, we're we're getting bombarded with stuff all the time. I mean, you and I right now sitting in front of a computer are getting it. And you know, when you get to the level of health that I am, um, and probably you are at this point, it doesn't bother you as much, but it's still a factor. You know, if we can find ways to neutralize that a little bit, I think it works well for for all of us, whether we're overcoming a chronic illness or just trying to stay well. No, for sure. And that's why I like some of these like kind of uh, scalar and frequency companies like Blue Shields one. There's quite a few out there that are doing good work now is because mm -hmm. it's a lot of people, you know, they want to do these Faraday cages and all of these things. And it's like, well, you 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 kind of need EMFs to do this show. We need EMFs like we need the Wi-Fi. We need yeah. things. And so yep. with some of these like quantum technologies and scalar technologies, they're they're just sending different frequencies to you so that you're not as harmed by the EMS, but then we're still allowed to use the EMS. So yep. hopefully that's like the way forward where we can kind of reduce all of the, the toxic stress that they cause, but then still, you know, get all the benefits from the technology. Yeah, I think that's great. Cool, man. Well, I think we covered quite a bit here. Is there any last yeah. uh, things that you want to uh, cover for anybody? No, I think that's great. Um, you know, it's um, I, my, I would encourage people uh, to get a copy of my latest book, Cellular Wellness Solution. It's not about Lyme disease, but it's, it's, it's kind of beyond Lyme disease. All these other things that I'm talking about that really every person ought to know about. And it's where we're going to be in our understanding of chronic illness in 20 or 30 years, but it's going to, it takes a long time to bring everybody to get there. And the bottom line is a lot of our pharmaceuticals that we use for chronic illness, which really don't result in wellness are going to be found obsolete. And we're going to have to look at other things. We're going to have to look at herbs and other modalities like the things we've been talking about to stay well. And, um, you know, so, so getting that, that core understanding of wellness from cellular, from the, at that cellular level, I think is really important. Absolutely. And uh, why don't you tell everybody, you know, your Instagram handle, website, your supplement company, you can plug all of that stuff as well so they can go check it out. 
Uh, the supplement company is vitalplan.com. Um, and, you know, we've been in business for about 10 years. Um, big thing that we do is, you know, create supplement packages. Uh, we've got something called the Restore Kit that, you know, a lot of people with chronic, struggling with chronic issues use that has the herbs that I was talking about but also guidelines for diet and recovering sleep. And, you know, and we just, we're, we're continuing to build it out. I'm training health coaches to help with that. So that's a pathway, but it's all, we're also a wellness company of just people, um, you know, just, just wanting to maintain wellness or, or, uh, you know, enhance health as they go through life, um, you know, from a healthy aging point of view. So we do a lot of things in that respect. Um, you can find my book, Unlocking Lyme, there. You can find the Cellular Wellness Solution there. You can find those books on Amazon, too. Those are the main places to find information about what we're doing. I also have an informational website uh, called, called RawlsMD.com that we built really for the Lyme community and other people struggling with chronic illnesses just as a, a place of forum um, to post information that we try to put out current information about a lot of different topics. So both of those are, are good places. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think you did a great job of portraying your message and you're very knowledgeable. So I'm very grateful that you uh, took out the time. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And, you know, every opportunity that I can get just to share all this information I've collected is appreciated. So, happy yeah, to thank you. that's the only way forward. Cool. Awesome. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. You too. If you enjoy this show, would you please take a second to subscribe, rate and review it for me? Also, if you'd like to know more information about Combo, personalized one on one coaching with me, or for upcoming retreat information, which I host with my wife, please visit my website in the show notes or DM me on Instagram. My handle over there is at Integrative Matt. Until next time, my friends.